Hi, my friends. This is Carter, and welcome to this episode of Making It Up, the conversation series where I get to chit-chat with other writers. And it's it's been a tremendous networking opportunity to me to, to, to start this podcast, and, and certainly it's been no small amount of work um, and no small amount of cost. And But when I, when I look back on nearly the 100 episodes that I've done, I, I think about all the people I've met, all the friends that I've made, and all the advice that I've gotten just listening to these brilliant writers. Um, so before I get to today's guest, I want to mention uh, my writing retreat, The Gentle Novelist, which is this summer, August 9th through 11th, in stunning, gorgeous, majestic Boulder, Colorado, where I have been for the last, boy, 26 years, something like that. Um, Boulder is just a stellar place to be. And, you know, this is a writing retreat, two and a half days for all of you aspiring or frustrated, um, or dreamer writers out there who just have that idea for a novel and maybe you've started it and finished it, or maybe you keep poking at it and you're having trouble finding the motivation, the tools, the inspiration, the accountability that you need to actually sit down and write it. Um, this is what this retreat is for. Um, I am going to be leading you through two and a half days um, of novel writing exercises and and giving you those tools, but mostly, you know, really giving you that accountability and that inspiration because sometimes sometimes you need a coach. That's how I learn. I learn when I have a coach. I, I picked up, you know, I wanted to play guitar in my 20s for no real reason. Uh, otherwise, other than that, I thought it was maybe a cool thing to do. But I knew I couldn't teach it myself. I knew I had to be accountable to somebody. So I got a guitar teacher. And I went there once a week for, geez, three years. Um, and I never got great at the guitar, but I got much better because I had somebody who was holding me accountable, somebody who was inspiring me, who was motivating me, and who had the experience and the craft down to, to be able to teach me how to do it. So this is what I want to do for you people. I want to, I, I want you to come out to Boulder, Colorado. I'm eliminating it to just 10 spaces. Um, so, but I want to help guide you to, to get that novel that you've been dreaming about done. Just go to my website, carterwilson.com. You're going to see a, a link there for retreats. You can read all about it. Um, and I might be ready to just discount. So check that out. So anyway, on with the show. So today, today, how often do I get to talk to a number one New York Times bestselling author? Not that often, uh, but today I did. Today I spoke to Don Bentley. So Don Bentley, you know, just look him up. Oh my God, he, you know the uh, uh, the success that he's had. Um, but he's he's the New York Times bestselling author of the Matt Drake thriller series, including Hostile Intent, The Outside Man, and Without Sanction, uh, as well as one forthcoming title. He also writes in the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan Jr. universe with zero hour target acquired and one forthcoming title. So his upcoming book is Forgotten War, but he actually has three books coming out this year. Holy shit. Are you kidding me? And he'll explain it in the interview, a book every five months. It's kind of uh, the, what he's, you know, the schedule that he's under right now. Um, and, you know, this was a fantastic interview because. Don is so full of advice and wisdom and, and the practicalities of making a living writing. And he's given a lot of advice to people over the years, and he certainly uh, didn't hold back on this episode. We had a fantastic conversation, and I finished it thinking like, oh, man, I, I'm, all, I'm all pumped up to write more right now because this guy, he gets shit done is what this guy does. Um, so I think if you're... If you're a writer, you're going to get a lot, a lot, a lot from this episode. So I hope you enjoy. This is my fantastic conversation with Don Ben. There he is. Hey there. How's it going, Carter? Good. How are you? You weren't late at all. <laughs> that's because you didn't realize that 15 minutes ago I was on the treadmill at the gym and I saw you followed me on Instagram and I'm like, I wonder when my interview with Carter is. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a big believer in exercise above anything else, including writing. So, uh, good on. 
Are you a big workout guy? Yeah, I try and uh, I, I uh, manage my strength or my uh, my stress that way for sure. And it's you know I've had jobs for where you know, physical fitness was kind of a requirement for it, and then once you get used to doing it, you kind of. I had a, a job um, with some pretty frustrating coworkers, and my wife is like, "Go do deadlifts, you'll feel better." And there is. <laughs> Something therapeutic about throwing around a lot of weight after a bad phone call. So, yeah. Totally. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been scientifically proven, right? With anxiety right. and depression and everything else. And he, it, almost any level of physical fitness is going to buoy your your mood and, and, and release those endorphins. And there's there's actually a lot of times I talk about the parallels between writing and working out, right? Make mm -hmm. it a priority. Make it a passion. You don't have to do it a lot every day. And that muscle will build. You'll be amazed. Yeah. Two years of writing every day, you're gonna be like, "How did I ever struggle writing the paragraph?" Now the paragraphs are easy because I built that much. It's exactly the fucking same thing, man. Yeah, um, yeah, hundred percent. I have a buddy that uh, works for Procter and Gamble, and he showed me a, a, a kind of a lunch and learn thing they did once, where the the guy was talking about work life balance and how to manage it and he said you know everybody says they don't have time to work out but you actually need less sleep when you do work out because of the extra energy and stuff like that and for sure it's a lifesaver yeah and, and there's nothing more infuriating than the bullshit of i don't have enough time that just means you don't care enough it, yeah. it, no matter what it is if you don't have enough time that means you just don't care there's always time for things that you yeah yeah, absolutely. And it's just such an excuse. And I find that with aspiring writers, a lot of, them. you know, man, my first eight books, I had a full-time job. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I figured it out and, and anybody can, I think, but it is a matter of priority. Um, so, so where, where are you? Where are you located? Yeah. I'm just North of Austin in Round Rock. So. Oh yeah. Dell, Dell computer country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The <laughs> man that built Round Rock, Texas, Michael yeah. Dell. Yeah, exactly. I always remember that. Round Rock associated with him. Have you, are you Texas born and raised or? No, um, I was actually born and raised in Ohio, but moved to Texas the first time in 2000, 2001 when I was stationed there in the army. And my wife kind of got the bumper sticker that said we weren't born here, but we got here as fast as we can. And so <laughs> other than, uh, so we were in Texas um, off and on since then. And when I got out of the military, we went back home to Ohio for three years, but then have been back in texas since um 2010 so i guess the last 10 years here and three years in dallas so the last 13 years ago or we were in texas again right on so so growing up in in, in ohio kind of what was that what was that experience like were you were you exhibiting writerly qualities as a kid i mean i certainly wasn't um or did you have i mean you obviously I know ended up going into the military, but yeah. did you have aspirations one way or another as a kid? Yeah, I, I wanted to tell stories for sure. And I think huh. when people ask me all the time about, uh, you know, what do I need to be a writer? Can writing be taught or something? I think if you don't have that innate desire to tell stories and and know a good story from a bad story, that's really hard to teach. Like you can teach somebody subject verb agreement. You can teach the three act structure. But and the way that manifests for me is, you know, I remember watching TV or, and thinking, man, wouldn't it have been cool if they would have done this instead? You know, mm -hmm. I was an East kid, so I was a big A-team fan. And you didn't have to watch more than three episodes of the A-team to know what was going to happen. <laughs> what was know? the plot? What was the exactly, A-team story? Exactly. Let me guess. And right. so, you know, one of my earliest, I think, attempts at writing was in elementary school. I remember watching i was also a big um star trek fan and would watch those with my dad and writing like an alternate version of an ending or something to star trek and so even when i was a kid when i'd mow the lawn when i would do anything that was kind of didn't require as much brain power i'd be telling myself stories as part of that and um when i was i think it was in fifth grade um i had a teacher you know that would give us writing assignments and no matter what the writing assignment would be mine would somehow involve gi joe saving the day and at one point she's like you can't write every story about gi joe and i'm like but it's it's the perfect story like how can you're you like not? watch me for the rest of my life do exactly that exactly exactly <laughs> i'm talking to you miss white no she was a good teacher and uh yeah so i grew up wanting to tell stories and then 
uh, my senior year of high school, I had an amazing English teacher um, for AP English. Her name was Jill Easter. And she actually, uh, I found her. She's long since retired. She's in her 80s. But I found her when um, Target Acquired hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm like, you did this. Like, you helped encourage this. And so she comes to my book signings in Ohio. So she came to the last one. She's coming on Friday. And so um, that's wonderful. It it was it was really neat. And so she she pulled me aside and said, hey, I think you have what it takes. You could actually be a writer. And so, you know, I took that encouragement to heart and then went to college and majored in electrical engineering as all good writers (laughs) do. And so Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to tell stories, but I also knew that it was easier to um, to tell stories when you had a way to pay the mortgage that didn't uh, reside in your ability to tell stories for sure. Yeah, and I definitely want to spend some time talking about that because I think that's something that the listeners are interested in is is that work life balance that yeah how do you do it kind of a thing and yeah you know what I've learned over twenty years is it's not that hard <laughs> and it goes back to what we were saying about it. it's yeah. just a matter of prioritizing it as you would prioritize anything else that you're passionate about but I want to go back for a second you mentioned something kind of interesting about how you feel you know you've got to have this innate passion to storytell. And I think that's true, but I think that that, that passion or even ability might not evidence itself for a long time, you know, and it takes the ability to actually recognize that in you. But what I wanted to ask you is what do you think, you know, you, you can't teach that passion to be a storyteller but do you think you can have that passion and maybe not have a lot of talent and learn the talent part of it? Yeah, I think that's true for sure. There's um, there's a fantasy writer named Terry Goodkind, and I remember um, he he wrote the um, sort of something series. He's fantasy, so it must have the word sword in the in the <laughs> title. Right, right. And so I remember reading an interview about him and that he was dyslexic, which Vince Flynn was actually was also dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't like writing at all. And in fact, I've heard the same thing about um, Vince Flynn. I can't remember if it was David Brown or somebody said that when they asked Vince what part of the writing he or what part of being a writer he he didn't like the most. And he said the writing part. And so for both of them, you know, dyslexics, my wife is a dyslexia teacher and it's very, very hard for them to read and also to write. You know, that's something that they have to work a lot to learn at. But that for both of those writers, great writers, they had that innate ability to tell a story. And, and, and so what they had to do was just get their toolkit better so that they could tell that story and tell it more effectively. And so I think you can certainly learn um, the tools for writing. And I have people all the time ask me, do I have to have a degree in writing to be no, a successful God, no. writer? And uh, most of my friends, I I do because I had the GI Bill and was able to go back and get an MFA in writing popular fiction. But most of my friends who are successful writers don't, but every single one of them had to learn portions of the craft one way or another. And so you can learn that through writers conferences. You can learn it. I took a series of classes from Writer's Digest online. And and so you have to learn um, those things about your craft, but if you don't have that ability to tell a story, you know, it's kind of like uh, maybe if you're if you're a great handyman, but you can't build a house unless you have the blueprints for it. Right. You might have all the tools in your hand, but unless you have the blueprints to know what that house is going to look like, you can't build it. And I think maybe that's how those two things go together. Totally. And, and in a way, it's a little bit like stand up comedy. It's like, you know. You have to put yourself out there. You have to be, be yeah. immensely vulnerable and you kind of learn on the job. And yeah. it's, if there is going to be any success, it's not going to be probably for years because yeah. you have to go through that curve. So in my, my case, I started writing out of the blue in my thirties, having no experience. And so I was fully self-taught, but that means three full-blown practice novels Yep. Uh, I, was, yep. I was able to get an agent with my first one, but that's also how you learn. You get the feedback from your yep. agent, from all the rejection letters, you know, and, and if you take it to heart, you can learn it all. And, and yeah. but I do think there needs to be that, like you said, that ability to storytell and be like, 
is this interesting? Is this not interesting? Would yeah. I watch this if this were on Netflix right now? Exactly. That, that's exactly. how I frame a lot of it. I see things cinematically. I'm like, this shit's boring. I wouldn't watch this. I would turn this off. You got to change it then. Um, so, so then you, you know, so what was, what was the impetus to go into the military? Um, from a young age, I'd always wanted to serve. I mean, my, I, I joke that I'm the first member of my family to voluntarily join my dad and, and my grandfather were both drafted in, uh, Vietnam and world war two, um, respectively. And so I knew I wanted to do that. I knew I wanted to do something for my country. I, I wanted people to join the military for a whole bunch of different reasons, and all of them are probably valid. But what I really wanted to do is the things that you couldn't do anywhere else, like the fact that they would pay you and you would get to roll around in a tank and blow stuff up sounded pretty intriguing to me. <laughs> yeah, and you wouldn't get you know? yelled at for and, it. Uh, you weren't getting yelled at for it. They were encouraging you. And I never got to roll around in a tank, but I got to flying around in an Apache helicopter and blow stuff up, which is another. People ask me all the time. They're like, are you, do you still miss flying? Do you fly at all? And I was like, you know what? I Flying was fun, but I like the mission. I like putting steel on target and they don't let you hang rocket pods underneath the wing of a Cessna 172. So I don't really fly much anymore, but yeah. <laughs> so how long were you? How long were you in for? Yeah, for 10 years. So I graduated and then was in the army for 10 years. And as part of that, from 2005 to 2006, I was deployed uh, to Afghanistan as an air wow. cavalry troop commander. And wow. then I got out uh, a year after that. Was your intention the whole time to to get out eventually or, or had you had thoughts about being a lifer? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to be... Um, in the in the normal army, they call them companies. If you're in cavalry, they call it a troop. And so I knew I wanted to be a troop commander because that's kind of the quintessential thing for a junior officer to do. Almost everybody, if you stay in, gets a chance to be a commander. And it's it's the first time where you have a whole lot of latitude to accomplish your boss's mission that you get to be um you get to be the, the one who puts into practice your commander's intent. And that's a huge that phrase has special meaning in the army and the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army is the only military in the world in which uh, in, um, in, in absence of orders, you're supposed to attack. You're not supposed to defend. You're not supposed to hang out. You're supposed to attack. And that commander's intent is very the military. People who haven't been in the military, you know, think they are pictured of the structure and the rigor and the rules and all that's true. But what's also true is in the American military initiative is rewarded rewarded and encouraged and there's a famous um, general mcmaster who was um, trump's chief of staff for a while was famous for in the first gulf war a battle called i think it was the battle of like 72 easting or 77 easting but basically he was a company commander a cavalry company commander and his limit of advance was the 72 easting line and so his boss had told him don't go any further than that but when he got up to that line, he identified the target that his boss had outlined in his commander's intent. And so with no way to coordinate with his boss, with no way to reach back, he said, that's what we're supposed to do. My boss would want me to kill that target. And so he crossed that limited advance and, and destroyed that target. And that is something that's very unique to the American military mindset, that, that notion of you, you get to the latitude to execute your commander's intent. And often that means without asking for permission, without going back to them, but you don't really get to do that until you're at the company or troop commander level. And so I knew I wanted to do that. Um, the way aviation works in the, in the army anyway, is that you fly when you're a platoon leader and then you go work a staff job where you don't fly too much. And then you fly as a troop or company commander, and then you work another staff job for probably five or six years. And then you might become a battalion or squadron commander and fly again. And after being a troop commander, I had no desire to stick around and do staff jobs for six years in the right. hopes of maybe flying again sometime later. Right, right. So you got out of it what you you were looking for and you put yeah. into it what you wanted to give, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then were you, you know, were you thinking, I, 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 so it, it you know, it feels almost like a, a disconnect between being in the military and being a writer, but it's not at all, right? But yeah. it, it, it can, from the surface, look at it. Were you 
while you were actively deployed, were you thinking? Yeah. About, like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like, like, like to get an MFA is like a big deal. Was yeah. that a plan the whole time? No, that wasn't a plan, but I wrote, I wrote, um, three books that didn't sell before I wrote my debut without sanction that sold in a two book deal. And the first two of those books I wrote while I was in the army. And in the second of those books, I actually wrote portions of, or I might even have finished the rough draft while I was in Afghanistan. And so when, when we would come back from a mission and everybody else would go play cards or do what else, I'd take out my laptop and start writing. And it was, you know, partly a way to keep keep same um during the long periods of boredom and the and the way to pass the time and do it. But I knew I wanted to be a writer. And um and to me, and veterans make great uh great storytellers because sure. there's so much of the truism of the military is hurry up and wait. And oftentimes that wait that wait um stretches much, much longer than the hurry up part. And you you pass it by telling stories. And there's kind of a joke at least among aviators, like every single aviation story starts out with the words, no shit, there I was, air metals hitting me in the face. And so those, there's a lot of uh, lot of stories and a lot of storytellers and probably a culture of, of, of telling stories. And so to me, those two always went together. Um, we were right. talking about before about like work, work-life balance and how to figure that out. I mean, at, at that point, I had little kids and I had a uh, really demanding job and so i would write we had in the army you have um pt or physical fitness training every day at 6 30 in the morning or whatever and so most of the time i'd get up at 4 30 in the morning and write for an hour or so before pt and then go to pt and work long hours and a lot of times pass out on the couch at seven o'clock or something but you do what you got to do you know if it's it's just like anything else in life it's if, if it's important to you, you make sacrifices and mine was usually an hour or less sleep so that I could write more. Yeah. And it's so, it's so hard to define what that is, right? Because you're getting up at four 30 in the morning to do something that you have zero idea what it's going to become, yeah. where it will go, if it will make a single dollar anywhere. And, yeah. and that's a massive commitment. And I think that escapes a lot of people because a lot of people are like, okay, what's the payoff once I do this? And if you're a writer, you have no idea what the payoff, and there might be zero payoff. There's no guarantee yeah. you're going to sell a book, much less become a best-selling author. Um, and maybe that's the goal, but it's that commitment yeah. that you were showing. Yeah, and, and in some ways, honestly, a little bit of ignorance is bliss. Helped me there because it was, um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't pre-internet days by any stretch. It was like 2000 or 2001, but early it was, internet. Yeah, yeah, early internet, and so. I, at first I was just wrestling with, can I even finish a book? Like it seemed such a big undertaking and I had no idea how to do it or even how to measure progress or anything. And so I wasn't even thinking about, you know, I just naively assumed, well, of course it's going to sell. The hardest part is finishing the book. And so it, it takes a lot to, you know, I wrote a bunch of short stories. Most of them were pretty terrible. And so you figure out kind of how to do scenes and how the basic things work, but jumping from that to a novel is a huge leap. And so it took me a long time just to figure out how to finish a book. And then when it didn't sell, I those were the days when you, your agent would send it out and you would get letters back. And some of them were actually decent letters. And so she photocopied them all and would send me the rejection letters. And I kept that envelope for years. And when I got to the point where I was like, I don't know if I've got what it takes, I'd take that envelope out and read through the good rejection letters that were like, you're close, but not yet. You're things like that. And so um, that helped me with through the second book. And then when the second book didn't sell, there was a good period of time where I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I tried a couple different genres. I tried revising it. I tried all kinds of things. And it's the, when folks ask about it, you know, I, I say, you know, it, it shouldn't have taken me 17 years, but it probably should have taken me three novels. And I could have sped that time up if I would have just, it's really hard, especially for your first book or two to realize you got to just let that go. You got to look at it as a learning experience rather than there's too many young writers I've seen that are trying like heck to revise a novel that is right. not worth saving. Like you right. learn stuff on that. You got to move on and write a better book. And the the woman, Barbara Powell, that ended up becoming 
my agent with without sanction that's what she told me with my third book she's like you need to go home and write a better book and it was <laughs> it was hard it was hard to hear that but it was actually exactly the right advice that's that's 100 percent right like the rejection all those letters i have all those letters too and i took it to heart i'm like okay what if five of these editors are saying the same thing in my case it was my heroes were too weak and mm -hmm. I always liked heroes being weak because I felt that that was very, really very realistic, right? Because yeah. it, it yeah. was an everyman kind of a situation. But you start to realize, like, oh, but this is like these are professionals giving you advice. All right, yeah, yep. you're a little bit stronger than the book sells. And but yep. you're right, three novels. That's it's totally what it takes, and it takes a lot of humility and vulnerability. Yeah, and and I think if you are a writer, if you're an innate writer, that is going to come out of you one way yeah or another so the fact yeah. that after that second novel you didn't know what was going to happen but you went back to the well it's because you wanted to tell a story not because necessarily yeah. you were looking to sell a book but then the books did sell and did yeah. you you know obviously you know your your books are militarily tied was mm -hmm. that the intention you said you messed with a couple different genres did you just kind of find like all right i know what i'm talking about here there, there's built-in conflict. That's interesting. Um, let me just write along these lines. Yeah, I think, and that's the other thing I talk to people about when they say I want to be a writer or I've written my first book. I said, okay, great. What are the three books your book should be shelved next to? Like, tell me not just the genre, but what books are yours like? And if they, they can't answer that, then I tell them you need to read more in your genre and understand what your customer wants. Because at the end of the day, for commercial fiction, we're producing a product for a very specific customer. So the customer that buys romance novels is not necessarily the same customer that buys military thrillers. So there can be some of the same people, but by and large, that's a different customer set. Right. And so the same thing as you as a writer may have many different stories you want to tell and many different um, genres you're interested in. Like I said, I'm a huge fantasy guy. The first in in high school and in, even once I graduated, the first couple novels that I never finished were fantasy novels. But when I started looking and you kind of do that, that Venn diagram and say, okay, what do I love? What do I love to read? Because that's the other caution flag I, flow up, I throw up. If you're trying to write in a genre that you don't love to read, that should be a, a bit of a warning because if if you don't love that genre, you're not going to be immersed in it. You're not going to understand what, what the conventions are of that genre. And that's not because you have to de deliver something that is exactly the same. In fact, you shouldn't, but right. you have to understand what your customer expects when they pick up a book in that genre. And you can surprise them a little, but if you throw them a complete curveball, it's not going to resonate with the customer you're trying to sell to. And so I looked at, you know, what genres am I passionate about? Um, what do I love to write? And then I looked at part of what is my, what would make me compelling as a writer? You know, certainly my background um, as, as somebody who was in the FBI and in the military for 10 years and other things is much more compelling to folks when you're looking to get interviewed or to get, you right. know, if you're looking for how do they market you? than to just be another guy who writes fantasy and stuff. And, and not that there's anything wrong with that. And so that sounds really, really mercenary. And I know sometimes people recoil about that and say, hey, I just want to write. And you can, you can just write and you can write whatever you want. But if your goal is to make a living selling commercial fiction, then you have to, in a lot of ways, approach writing commercial fiction in the same way as if you were a woodworker building chests of drawers for somebody. Like you have to understand what other chests of drawers are out there, what kind of customers buy them, and what your potential customer might be before you spend a year of your life, you know, making this chest of drawers. And so, again, and it, it's not, and I'm not saying anybody, everybody has to behave that way. You certainly don't. But if your goal is to write commercial fiction for a living, then you have to understand what you're really doing is producing a product for a particular customer set. Totally. And like, you know, the, even the idea of setting out to say, I'm going to write commercial fiction for a living is, is a little absurd. Um, mm -hmm. and, and maybe that naivete is, is, is helpful and will buoy kind of your, your chances just out of pure ignorance. Yeah. But I, but, but I, I mean, I think you do have to do all those different things, you know, to have any kind of a shot 
you have to be sociable. You have to be on social media. You have to be networking and understand who the other writers are and to make all those yeah. connections. And even then, maybe writing's not enough. Maybe you're teaching seminars. Maybe yeah. you're, you're doing all lots. There's a lot of different ways to make money being a writer. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You have to put yourself out there. It's not easy. Yeah. I think if you talk to professional writers, um, so that's, so it's, it's, it's like every tier you go up is like the difference between playing junior high football, high school football, college football, and playing in the NFL. Like the amount of people who can make that transition from one tier to the next gets exponentially smaller every time you you um, go from one to the other. I remember listening to Shaquille O'Neal um, talk about going into a school and asking kids what do they want to do and when the vast majority of them said they wanted to be basketball players, he said, look, there's only whatever, 172 players in the NBA. Like the odds right. of you becoming okay. a professional basketball player is minuscule. And so if your job is to support yourself as a writer, the number of folks who can do that solely through their books is very small. Most of the people you talk to, exactly like you said, you approach it like a business and say, hey, I need a particular income flow. And so that can come from writing my books can come from editing. It can come from teaching classes. It can come from writing articles. And you got to kind of piece together that patchwork in order to get to the income level that you get to. And we were kind of alluding to this before talking about it. Oftentimes in this business too, the work is there before the money is. And so certainly for me, like I had the opportunity to write more than one book at a time before the money that I was getting paid for those books would have justified me doing that full time. And so that's another thing I, I tell folks is that you, if you're fortunate enough to get a book deal and a book deal that's somewhere close to you think, hey, maybe I could make this work. What my advice to you is would be to hold off on writing full time until you physically can't do both your day job and writing, because chances are you're going to have to bank some money because the work is going to be there before the money will. And you'll probably need to fund yourself at some point as you're making that transition. And it's much easier to do that if you've worked that day job and socked away money and have the ability to do that versus you jump all in on your first book because you got a pretty good deal. Maybe it doesn't sell as well. Maybe it takes a while for the second one to come in maybe. And now your whole life is wrapped up in the in your ability to write this next book. And that's a really hard place to be. It's really hard to be creative, to be a good writer when all you're thinking about is, holy cow, I barely got enough to pay the mortgage next month, let alone thinking about what this next book's going to be. And so right. the better, you know, delayed gratification, the better that you can wait and set yourself up for hopefully making that transition versus jumping in the, 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 the more, I see more people have problems because they jumped into full-time writing too soon rather than waited and waited and, and maybe socked up a little bit of money and had a bigger name and that kind of thing. Yeah. It depends on the circumstance. And I think the message also is you don't ever have to transition. You yeah, know, no, that's right. You can be disciplined and you can have both worlds depending on how rigorous your full-time job is. You know, the number of writers who fully are, you know, are, are full-time writers that I know I'd say the preponderance, if not almost all of them have partners who are also mm -hmm. making money and they don't have that stress of like, okay, I'm the sole breadwinner. How yeah. do I do this? Cause it's, I mean, I, I don't yeah. want to discourage people, but it's next to impossible yeah. until you get to a certain le level to your point, which very, very few people do for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but when it happens, it's, it's amazing that it's hard not to take it for granted because you're just like, oh, yeah. Even getting an agent is so far beyond what most people yeah. are ever going to get because that is so hard and you get zero Absolutely. money by getting an agent, but you have Absolutely. to be grateful and be like, how can I keep learning on this? And then, you know, so people will go to your website and look at it and be like, oh, this guy, he's right out of the box. He's successful. Mm -hmm. That's not true at all. You yeah. had, you had lots of years of rejection first, but then yep. the success came and that must've been, you know immensely gratifying when you're like, holy shit, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of crazy because it seems like in this business, it goes either everything happens really fast all at once or um, it doesn't happen at all. Right. And so right. you get spurts where 
incredible things are happening. And it's hard to, when you, I think writers have to be kind of the fake it till you make it thing. And so it's, it's very hard. And I would say, don't ever look on social media and try and judge one of your peers success by what they're posting, the deals they're talking about. Compare and despair. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my, that agent, Barbara Powell, she used to always say, keep your eyes on your own paper. And there's, there's some truth to that where it's, it's, it's really hard. What I think one of the hardest things about being a writer, if you have a little bit of success is trying to benchmark yourself, you know, in any other industry, if you're selling a widget, you can say, how much are my competitors selling it for? How are they doing? Where are they in their career? All of those questions are very, very hard to answer as a writer and frankly, are often very um, particular to the particular, to each individual writer, right? Like nobody has the same path. Nobody enjoys success at the same points. And so it's very, while, while it is useful, I think, to be involved in the writer community and, and the, the thriller community is fantastic, you can take yourself down a pretty dark path by trying to, you know, in, infer how, how your peers are doing based on their social media posts or based on how you think their books are doing or well, and then especially trying to, trying to then transfer that over to your own career and say, well, you know, whoever was at this point after they had sold their first book and stuff, why am I only here right. or something like that? And it's down that path. Madness, madness lays for sure. Totally. And, and if you look at yourself, regardless who you are, if you're at a writer's conference and you've had any kind of book sell, all you have to yeah. do is look at yourself and be like, this is so far beyond what most people will ever get to, even yeah. though, you know, my advance was $1,500 or I didn't have it. Yeah. yeah. And, but it is tough to your point. Like you could read somebody's book and be like, this book kind of sucks. <laughs> and, and it, it did great. And then you, it, it is so easy to go down yeah. that wormhole. And I tried. To Absolutely. Work. Absolutely. There's, there's no healthy outcome for that. Yeah. Mark, Mark Graney is a, is a um, pretty good friend of mine and he has been so supportive and so helpful and has been over, which I think most of the writers in this genre are, but I remember seeing an interview with him and he's had, again, looking from the outside, he's had a level of success that very few writers have. He's, you know, had a bunch of books published, a movie made, all of that. And, and, and I remember seeing him saying in an interview, he said, you know, even where I'm at, I always have to battle kind of that envy or jealousy demon when I see somebody else has a new deal on Twitter, has somebody. And so you got to try and be when I, the other thing I tell writers, one of the good things about me taking as long as I did to be successful is that I was a fan of the genre and a champion of other writers long before I ever wanted anything. And so I still try with my social media posts, I try and have the majority be me promoting other authors because I'm genuine fans of them and I'm fans right. of the genre. And so when I ask for something, it's very, it's, it's very small. It doesn't happen very often and people respond to that. And I think if you, you have to make a conscious effort to say, I'm not seeing this person as my competitor. I'm seeing them as maybe if Mark Graney, if somebody buys a Mark Graney book, maybe they'll buy one of mine because they loved right. his and they're like, what else is out there in the genre? And so you have to, and then I'm speaking to myself, not just to everybody else. You have to constantly adjust your attitude to be, this is going to be something of joy and then I'm going to celebrate um, other people's success rather than it being one of envy. Cause it's really easy to go down that road. You're absolutely right. I don't, I, I don't think competition is actually a real thing in the writing community because nobody's making that decision. Well, I just bought this book, so I can't buy this book. Yeah. People buy yeah. books that they never read all the time because they're addicted to buy yeah. books. And, and I think you're right. I think it is that matter of introspection and just asking yourself constantly, am I happy? And I, yeah. I do that all the time. Like when I write, I write for myself and I'm like, yeah. I like this story. I have no idea if anybody else will, but if I don't yeah. like it, I'm not going to write it. And it's absolutely. So it is just a matter of, it's almost meditative, right? Of really, really kind of going inside yourself and be like, okay, the rest of the world needs to be quiet. How do I feel about myself? And if you can yeah. be honest about that, then it'll point you hopefully in the right direction. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. When did, uh, I just, I'm just curious about how did that transition to like, Hey, do you want to write as Tom Clancy? 
come along because that's, I mean, Jesus Christ, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It was a huge deal. So, um, I'm very fortunate to, uh, I just turned in, um, a book that's called weapons grade, which is my fourth Tom Clancy novel. And it's the eighth novel total, um, that I've worked with Tom Colgan, who's my editor. So he's my editor for, um, forgotten war, which is my fourth Matt Drake book that came out yesterday. And he also is the editor, um, for the Clancy estate. And so, Tom's worked with everybody from yep. Janet Ivanovich to Lee Child to Tom Clancy when he was still alive. And so once Tom passed, the Clancy estate came to Putnam and then by extension to Tom Colgan and said, hey, we want to keep this universe alive. We'd love for you to bring in writers to write in it. And so every time I have a new Clancy book come out, there's at least one person, usually on Facebook, who's like, you should be ashamed of yourself. Clancy's rolling over in his grave that you're profiting off his name. And I'm like, first off, (laughs) I'm not the one profiting off his name. And I said, second off, and I never say this because you can't necessarily, Kyle Mills says, don't feed the trolls. And so I don't feed the trolls. But the second part is the way I look at it is the same way that George Lucas created this amazing universe called Star Wars. And he told a couple stories in there. But then what he did is he brought in these other writers and creators to say, hey, make this world bigger, make it more vivid, continue these characters that I created. And that's how I view what I get to do with Clancy. And so when I turned in the second book in my Matt Drake series that was called The Outside Man, I had uh, the editorial call with Tom. And at that time, now I look forward to the editorial calls. At that time, I was very nervous about it because... In my mind, I thought that everything that Tom had pointed out that was wrong with the book or that he thought we needed to take a look at, I needed to have an answer for. And it was kind of like a a mini test. And in reality, Tom is an incredible editor and is very, very smart. And the way I approach it now is when he points something out and we have the call, I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. What do you think? And I listen to what he thinks and solicits his ideas. And it's much more collaborative. But back then, I didn't understand that. And so I got through it and, and took a deep breath and said, OK, that, that was good. And then at the end of it, in a very Columbo-esque like moment, he said, what would you feel about writing the Clancy universe, too? And I, I, I said, what did he say? And, and, the, um, and so it turned out that Mike Madden, who's a fantastic writer, he writes one of the Clive Cussler series now. I decided that he was um, done uh, writing in the Clancy universe. And so Tom Colgan was looking for another writer. And he had he had uh, another thing Tom says is that a lot of folks have one book in them because you have your entire life to write that one book. But if you sell it and your publisher comes back and says, great, I want a second one. Now, suddenly you have to turn that second book around in a year. And a lot of people can't do that. It's it's a big, big jump to go from you have as long as you rot to write this book and polish it to you have a year. And so I think part of it is he was waiting to see, could I write a second book? Could I hit my deadline? Could I turn it in on time? And once I checked those boxes, then he offered me um, the Clancy gig. And it was in, in they're, they're very, very generous. I don't mean to imply that, but, but at that time, it was not at a point where I could write full time. And so originally after I got off the phone with him, I told my wife and I said, you know, here's what he's offered me, but I think I'm going to tell him no. And she's like, what are you talking about? And (laughs) he's like, this is what you want to do. And I said, yeah, I know. But financially, it's not at a point. I'm the primary breadwinner. We have three kids. One was heading to college. I've got two in college now. I'm like, it's not at a point where I could quit and do it. And she's like, don't quit your job. Let's see what we can make work for the first book. And so for the first version, I had a full-time job. I was writing a Matt book and I was writing a Clancy book. And it was it was by far the hardest, I can't remember how long it was, six months, seven months, eight months of my life. But we'd come together as a family and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bet on ourselves. We're going to bet on my ability to write and that if I'm successful, eventually I'll get to the point where I won't have to work a day job and write two books. And so we made it work. And I've I've never um, worked harder in my life. At least I thought I hadn't worked harder in my life until I became a full-time writer and then had to turn in a book every five months. And that oh boy, I've done that for the past two years or so. And that's no picnic either. But again, it's Oftentimes with writing as with life, um, 
you know, you get opportunities and it's how hard do you want to work? Do you want to pursue that? Because very few times in my life in any in any endeavor has it come to me and it's been exactly the money I wanted, exactly the no. usually you gotta work really hard for it, right? And so right. that's how it um played out for me. So this year, Forgotten War came out yesterday. That's the fourth book in my Matt Drake series, and then Flashpoint, which is my third Clancy number um novel, comes out on the 23rd of May. And then um, Weapons Grade, which is my fourth Clancy book, comes out, I think it's the 3rd of September. So I actually have three books that come out this year, but Tom planned that starting two years ago. And right. so that's why I've been working to do a book every five months. And it's it's been crazy, but I also get to have three books come out this year. And that's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and on a side note, Tom seems like a great guy. I, I've met him a few times and uh, and I follow him on follow him on Instagram where he just posts all his handwritten um, yeah. notes of the day and it's and it's it's profound and hysterical at the same time. So yeah, he's probably a great guy to work with. He's fantastic. I tell people all the time the persona that he presents on social media is exactly how he is in person. He's hugely like every time we finish a book together. And I get the first copy of the book. He puts a handwritten note in there about oh. something about that book, about something, what it was to like. And he was, um, when I took over the Clancy legacy, I was very, very nervous. And he said two things that really reassured me. And the first thing he said was, what I'm really good at as an editor is picking the right writer for the right series. And I know that you're the right writer for this series, so you don't ever have to doubt yourself. And then in the second thing he said is, I don't want you to try and write like Tom Clancy. I don't want to try and you mimic his style. He's like, nobody can write like Clancy. He's like, I picked you because I love your Matt Drake books and I want you to do that, but do it in this universe. And so that took a whole lot of the pressure away. And he is a fantastic, fantastic editor. He feels, if, like I said, the books don't feel like they're mine. They feel like they're ours. And that's because of him. And I can, without a doubt, say he has made every single one of these books better. A hundred percent. That's, that's, that's the perfect editor right there. Well said. Yeah. Um, well, listen, Don, we're going to wrap up before we do, we're going to do a quick storytelling of our own. Um, we're going to pick a random book from my bookshelves. We're going to pick a random page and a random sentence. We're going to read that sentence. And that will be the first sentence and maybe a two minute long short story. We'll just kind of alternate sentences back and forth. So, um, Pick, pick a color of a book and I'll go grab it off. Of, uh, uh, blue. Okay, we'll go get a blue book. And I had to restrain myself and not get a Clancy book because I have <laughs> I have all the originals. And I remember, I mean, I remember as maybe a, I don't know, an 18-year-old reading Cardinal of Kremlin. Mm -hmm. And, and the thought of reading, you know, an 800 to a thousand page book was so foreign to me then and abhorrent. And man, I just, it's crazy. It's crazy yeah. that he can write a 20 page passage on the detonation of a nuclear device and I'll yeah. read every word of it. Yeah. Not understanding yeah. most of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the power of Tom Clancy. So I have, uh, uh, Panama, a blue book by, uh, Eric Zensi. So give okay. me a page number between one and 400. 53. Okay. That's a great number. <laughs> I'm going to, you, I'm, I'm just going to quickly, um, okay. So I'm still going to read this and just give me whatever you want. One or two seconds. Okay. A door behind the desk opened and an immense human being shuffled out. Um, an immense human being shuffled out. He was wearing, uh, he was wearing Chuck Taylor's, but the left shoe was unlaced. He had the kind of stubble on his face that didn't look practiced. He looked tired, worn out, and angry. I didn't know who he was, but I got the distinct feeling he knew who I was. And he confirmed it when he said my name. He said my my name with a little bit of a a gargle, like he had broken shards of glass in his throat, and he cracked his knuckles and said, "You have to tie my shoe." 
I looked up, he was a good foot taller than me. And I said, you look like the kind of guy who gets a lot of different people to tie his shoes. Do I really have to do this? Uh, he, let's see, he shuffled forward, his shoulders barely fitting through the door until I was looking up at the gray whiskers at the bottom of his chin. And he said, I only see two of us in here and I'm not tying it. There are hills that you can die on, and this wasn't going to be one of them. I had no desire of death of any kind. So I got down to one knee and prostrated myself in front of him and slowly lowered myself to his laces. It was then that I saw the small piece of paper rolled up tightly, shoved up under the third and fourth lace. And I wondered if this is what he wanted me to read. But I wasn't about to fall for that trick because this wasn't the first giant with one unlaced shoe and a piece of paper that I dealt with. So I did what I always did. I unlaced the other shoe and took off running. <laughs> Let's call it there. That was great. Who knew it was going to take that direction? I think that's got a future right there. For Tie sure. my shoe. That's going to be the name of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, I was so... I was so eager to talk to you and I, and I loved hearing everything that you had to say. And I think, you know, the listeners are going to get a lot of good advice out of this. And it's just it's fantastic to see kind of what your journey has been and how successful it's been, but knowing that there were, there was yeah. no lack of minefields <laughs> along that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, Carter. As always, it was great talking with you. Yeah. Hopefully to see you at a conference soon. Take care, Don. Absolutely. See ya. So that's it. That's my conversation with Don Bentley. And I loved our storytelling. I, that was that was one of the more fun ones. And it got weird. And, and weird is always good in my book. Um, I, I do hope you go uh, check him out more. He's, he's a fantastic author. You can learn all about him from the website, which is donbentleybooks.com. So I highly encourage you to go visit there. And while you're at it, while you're on your computer and you have your internet browser launched, please head on over to my website, carterwilson.com. You can uh, subscribe to my newsletter, check out my books, check out my appearances, and you can uh, read all about The Retreat, The Gentle Novelist, that I will be hosting this summer, August 9th through 11th, in stunning Boulder, Colorado. So please check that out. Uh, more episodes of Making It Up coming out very soon. In the meantime, as always, I so appreciate you watching and or listening to this. Take care. Take care.